Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Brett, Ed, Fran, Johnny, Matt and Paul, helping you to build more muscle and to lose weight with a hint of banter and a dash of humour. Enjoy this week's episode. 3, 2, 1 and we are live, Edward. Number 120, no, 30, episode number 130. Hello. That's uh, that's another land landmark, that is, isn't it? 130. Is it? Is well, it? it's 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 not in the twenties anymore, is it? So, I think that's scraping the barrel, mate. If you <laughs> think that's a landmark, you're basically fucking scraping the barrel a bit like the Tories are scraping the barrel about fifty thousand new nurses. We could say that about a lot of the things Labour is saying as well, but uh, let's what? not go there. Are you joking? <laughs> Have you? Uh, I I get the impression, Ed, you don't know what I'm talking about. I am sticking. Well away from political chat in uh, on the podcast because uh, because so, because iTunes will turn around and block this like they block you on Facebook. No chance. I can block <laughs> on Facebook though, but not, iTunes would not do that to me. Um, no, I I would like to maybe talk a little bit of politics because I would have been talking a bit had our guest uh, not let us down today because he would have definitely been talking some politics with me. So. Instead, that's obviously going to be coming out at a later date. Going to have to reschedule because he's not here right now, obviously. And I was actually—I just gave away the fact that it's a he. <gasps> How dare I? The uh, yeah, everyone will be able to guess that now because what was it like? Forty percent of the population is male. Forty-five percent. So yeah, it's, it's narrowed it down. It's narrowed it down. Well, it's, it's one thing that's narrowed it down to. Anyway, um, he would have definitely taught politics. Um, I just think. You can't vote for any party that will so blatantly double down on on lies, such as we're gonna um, we're gonna fund basically fifty thousand new nurses for the NHS, and then say, uh, well, yeah, nineteen thousand are actually already employed, but we're gonna give them fifty thousand new. It's like, yeah, but nineteen thousand already employed, so isn't that thirty one thousand new? Like maths, you know, my eight year old can, well, I have an eight year old, but my eight year old could obviously do that mass song it's quite simple <laughs> I, th- I think with politics though it's, it's always one of those things isn't it where everybody starts saying yeah we'll do this we'll do that and they backed it off so you like off some figures and some things but every single one of them that like pretty much 90 percent of the claims from every single party you can be like okay so exactly where are you going to get the money from for that and they're a bit like oh, from uh, from from this or from that and some will say from cuts some won't answer and blah 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 so like you could literally all right yeah okay when you get things like that where they, you get kind of called out and on things um that, that's a very stereotypical um viewpoint you have there i think edward no and... but it's it's very very true though it's very 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 true i'm gonna yeah. disagree I don't think that's true in the slightest. I think most of them have quite well outcosted plans, really. Some of them might be a bit optimistic. Some people might not yeah. like some of them in terms of where the funding's going to come from. Um, but regardless, I do think that most of them have a reasonable idea in terms of where they're going to be funding their, their things from. I do agree that I do believe most won't get most of their manifestos done. Oh, albeit yeah. the Tories one's not particularly difficult because they've got like two things on it. Get Brexit done. All right. All right, mate, we've got that idea. We can understand this because we've been banging on about for ages, um, which is ironically probably not what's going to happen because even if you win majority power, you're not going to get Brexit done because even if you leave Europe, it's going to be going on for about fucking five years while you negotiate trade orders and stuff for like forever. So like, if people want to stop hearing about, oh, Brexit has borne the shit out of me, I'm just going to vote Conservatives to get it done, it's actually um, a fallacy in that you'd be better off voting someone else because it'll be done quicker if we just don't do it rather than try and do it and spend five years arguing about it. 
get out. I think I think also like it's one of those things. If you turn around and said, right, let's have another another vote of whether we stay or go, um, like a hundred percent, people like, we'd end up staying, and I think everybody knows that as well. So, yeah. I know. Um, anyway, going back to the nurses thing, I just think you can't vote for someone that lies so blatantly because it's like even but all asked, politicians lie though. They do all lie, or mm. most of them lie and exaggerate, or try and spin like media spin stuff. But there's lying and there's like really blatant lying, and like Boris Johnson is a hundred percent a pathological liar, like a hundred percent. He's an idiot. He is an idiot. He, no, he's an idiot like, and a buffoon. Yeah. But he's he's also a pathological liar. Like he, he he like, and I think a lot of his party are having to kind of go along with it and double down on some of the answers. Like when they get like this nurse thing is the best example in that when you say look. You said 50,000 new nurses, but in your own manifesto it says 19,000 of them are from existing nurses. And then said, why you claim it's 50,000 new when you're also saying there's 19,000 of them are already employed? That's 31,000 new. No, it's not. It's 50,000 new because we are uh, working hard to retain the talent in the NHS staff. So by definition, it's 50,000 more nurses. I'm like... But it's not because they're already employed. If I've got mm. five fucking apples and you and then I decide, right, I'm now, I'm now going to have seven apples, so I'm going to get two more, but I've kept my original five. It's like, I had five, so like I've only got two new apples. I haven't got fucking seven new apples. It's ridiculous. Oh, but, yeah, no, no, I completely agree. I do completely agree. And, um... and, and to be fair, that's a trivial point considering, like, no one really gives a shit. I say people do give a shit, but as in, as in no one really cares... It's just more the fact that it's the ethics of it in terms of lying, like the stuff they've done. Anyway, like you say, we're not going to go into a massive political debate on this. Just don't vote Tories, please. Because they only want to make the rich richer and um, don't really give a shit about um, community and obviously having a, a decent society. So, I think if there was two different leaders for the two main parties, it would be like a completely different story as well. Because you've basically got like a watered-down Donald Trump um and then yeah just a guy who's so out of touch um yeah Pro- so. I, I don't disagree in that labor especially i think labor would have more success if they did have someone else kind of leading their party than jeremy corbyn because unfortunately and i don't actually think most of it's to do with with his own actions and i think it's just he's been unfortunately mistreated over many years a lot of the stuff like people claim about his anti-Semitism and like being a terrorist sympathizer and stuff. There's plenty of stuff out there which people just doesn't don't believe it to be the true and, and provide evidence as to why like he's basically misrepresented by the media and stuff over a number of years. And it's kind of one of those scenarios where if you tell a lie enough times, eventually like people will believe it as truth. And I think that's kind of probably what's happened with him most of the time. But so therefore, like people just still don't want to vote for him, um, unfortunately. It's like anything, don't you? You're buying a person, and uh, when you don't want to buy anybody's person, it's a bit like, what do you do? I know. Uh, I know. The thing is, people shouldn't be voting for necessarily a leader. I do appreciate the leader themselves will have obviously the biggest influence over their party. So therefore, if you don't like that person, you don't want them to have a big influence over the party and what they believe in. Fine, I do get that, but you should still be voting on their policies rather than the person. You should be voting for what, obviously, they're, they're planning on doing in terms of improving our welfare. But people just don't see past it, unfortunately, like you say. Mm, yeah, yeah. And you can guarantee a lot a lot of votes will be based on 
leader and, and not like say manifestos policies and all that sort of stuff and uh when you get a lot of the kind of the the tory hate stuff it's just like dodgy pictures of of bojo um stuck on an antenna uh, antenna or whatever it was he was stuck on when he was uh, uh what was he doing paraglider uh, parachuting or whatever mm. like that photo and you know like photos like that and it's a bit like okay yeah all right um and, and that is kind of why, why would you vote for somebody like this and and that's uh that's a lot of people's reasoning against because a lot a lot of the time people don't look into it and don't do the research and the reading around it and stuff and i mean that's that's like everything though isn't it they don't do the reading around it uh, anywho so um politics aside um what has been going on this week just a quick update just in case anyone's interested in your life i have put my christmas tree up um, and my lights on the front of the house. Um, I must say, when starting out from scratch with Christmassy stuff, uh, is it's like more expensive than buying the bloody Christmas presents, buying trees and baubles and lights and stuff like that. Whew. Even when when we went to look at, like we tried to look at like the cheaper end of things like B and M and stuff like that, you're paying more than going to the local garden centre to buy a nice tree by buying a shit tree from them <laughs> they were more expensive it's bonkers mm. so yeah um so that that's basically been my weekend that and working today and it's uh currently 10 past 10 recording so yeah um, i know i know the commitment we go to for uh it wouldn't be for, 10 past 10 though if, if our guests hadn't have obviously delayed things and then not turned up but yeah yeah so we're also all we're go- no i'm joking it's all right it's all right it's good um, I put my tree up to. Oh, I didn't actually. I know technically I did put the tree up. Jenna decorated it with summer. So um, were you uh, kicked out of the room for decorating? No, I was just, just watching the football while they were doing it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I was just watching Norwich Arsenal. Nice, nice. Yeah. I got uh, I got sent to go and buy another sideboard. Um, well, she decorated the tree because I wasn't allowed anywhere near it. And then when I criticised the placement of one bauble, um, I nearly got slapped. So at least you didn't get slapped. That's something. Well, true, true. She put a massive bauble right at the top, and it looked like basically like the tree had like a tumor on its neck. Um, it was just like a bit out of place. Uh, yeah. It's a funny analogy, but okay. It's kind of what it looked like. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Well, um, obviously, this week's episode, we were going to uh, do a bit of a rundown. Obviously, in the last weeks, we said we were attending the Mac Nutrition Conference, Health at Every Age was the title of it. So it's a clinical conference uh, based on treating, um, not treating, sort of topics based on um, adolescent eating, um, some adoles- adolescent eating disorders. There was some stuff on uh, kind of nutrition for elderly, specifically around things like sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity. Um, and what else was there? There was, oh, perimenopausal nutrition, which unfortunately the speaker didn't turn up. That's uh, there's definitely going to be more to that than the meets the eye. They made it sound as though the like that morning the speaker had turned around and said they couldn't write a presentation for it, so they were sacking it off. They must I have, think they had them... have time to like write a proper evidence based presentation. Is kind of the way they described it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. But I think also like I know this hasn't been announced. Well, no, 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 because the speakers, apparently all the speakers were announced at the last yeah, conference. Like, yeah, which like was six months ago. So yeah, it isn't new. So, they obviously knew it was happening. Yeah, so it's pretty poor timing and pretty poor, worse timekeeping than me. If, yeah, if 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 that's <laughs> completely true, which I do, like, don't get me wrong, 
we love Mac Nutrition. Obviously, we're big fanboys given, obviously, our, our affiliation with them. But if that's true, it could only be in the case of that the person contacted them, like, let, basically left it to last minute. Obviously, maybe booked ages ago. I wouldn't necessarily kind of build your presentation six months ago, would you? But obviously left it really last minute, got near the time, thought, actually, I can't build an evidence-based presentation in time. So therefore, I'm really sorry, I can't attend and left them no time to basically do anything else, which could happen. But then you've got mm. to blame, the obviously, the individual's fault. But you wouldn't think most people would do that. You think if most people knew they had a big gig on, which is quite a big gig, they would probably put in a bit more effort and, pre- and prepare and have that done in more than enough time and not leave people like really at the, sh- uh, at the short notice as that. But Yeah, yeah, bit of a funny one. Um, um, and, and the thing I get that I'm thinking as well, if it's true that they couldn't build an evidence-based presentation in the amount of time, whatever that amount of time is, if you are a professional in that area, surely you should be at least be able to cobble something together that is even if yeah even if you haven't got the references exact you just say right okay you know i'll send the references over later i'll do a reference list um because you're going to know the research you're going to know the talking points it's just whether you can then remember whether it was johnson et al or most people probably have that filed away if they're an expert in that in in like a specific niche like that like i've got a mendeley like account full of shit and to be honest, my biggest problem is actually sorting out through the amount of reference and stuff in it, rather than not having any. But yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's finding them and finding the exacts. And it's not as if you need to full like Harvard reference. You just need to um, put, you know, like Schoenfeld, two thousand and three. Don't know if he did two thousand and three, mate. But I get your point. Whee! So anyway, we did at least have uh, Martin. Like kind of take it or stand in and, and do a bit of a cobbled together talk on it um, I think obviously it's an area he knows quite well anyway in terms of kind of some of the stuff that he's previously kind of had a, an interest and passion in and some of the, like he's obviously done a lot of work on PCOS and things so I think at least he had a bit of a, a reasonable I mean obviously he's got a strong background in most stuff but obviously I think at least, at least some of that he's had a, a quite a, a, a keen interest in so therefore he's quite well placed to do a lot of it anyway so Mm, definitely yeah yeah and, and he's a very well read individual i'm sure he could pick any topic and talk at length about it so i am yeah. sure so so there was that um and then i guess we also had um another bit of kind of like on adolescence in terms of dieting language and socially acceptable restriction in children so what we thought we'd do is um we'd probably just go through obviously we can't go through the whole thing that it was like a full day's conference from 10 till 5 whenever it was so obviously there's going to be way more information than we can ever give out. Plus, to be honest, I need more time to go through a lot of the notes and the slides again and digest a lot of it. But we just thought we'd probably just pick out a few things that stood out and that we found very interesting and a bit of a rundown on maybe in the day itself as well. I know not just not just the actual conferences and stuff, but the day and the night out and everything else. Sharing a garage with me and Dan McFitness. <laughs> yeah, I think we do get a lot of nutritionists and uh, PT types listening to this. It's not just uh, Mark Fudge and Jack Jackson. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think those who haven't been to a Matt Nutrition conference, and we could almost... Um, yeah, kind of like back it and give a little bit of a testimonial, I suppose, of, of how, how hmm. good they are. Um, uh, maybe yeah. that's a good place to start because I, like, I generally have joked enough times with people about going to the conferences saying things along the lines of people only go for the after parties anyway. 
or you know it's good to see people that you don't see very often within the industry and be able to catch up and you know that type of stuff so yeah what what did you enjoy most around so less of the content and more around the the day itself then mate let's start with that yeah, so they're always a. I love these things at the start because everybody kind of goes. The the they either don't know anybody, and we've 100% been these people where you don't know anybody, or you might have like chatted to the odd person on like in your intake or uh, on Instagram or something, and so everybody's a bit like awkward and nervous to start off with, and kind of awkwardly on their own, topping up on coffee, and uh, when you get there, and uh, it's, it's it's always quite funny, and then people start to like loosen up throughout the day, get chatting and stuff, and. Um, I suppose with like our sort of circle of friends who we were sat with and chatting with and stuff, um, some of them have got quite a big following. So it was quite funny seeing people like going up to them and being like, oh my God, like you're so and so. And it was Dr. Mike because he's now at Dr. 10, Mike because he's now, yeah, 10,000 followers. So he's Instagram famous. Yeah. Um, and then like Dan Mac got it as well. And, uh, and that. So, so it was quite funny. Like I think we, I remember a couple of years, uh, probably 12 months ago, um, we we had one person come up to us and goes, oh my god, no, that's a suggestion. I listen to your podcast. <laughs> Mate, I, I, I had someone come up to me this conference and say the same. Did you? Oh, okay. Yeah, fact, yeah. I, that was lunchtime. Someone came up to me and said, oh, you're the guy from No Notice Nutrition. And I said, let's be more formal. Like, my name is Brett. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I even like repped all the gear and still got nobody. Uh... Yeah, that's unfortunate, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um so there, there. <laughs> no so it, it's 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 funny isn't it like going to these things and you're chatting to these people because you just know them and and they're like kind of almost mini celebrities in that tiny little circle so it it's it, it, it's funny it's funny to see um but no like it, it, it's they're always a well-run very kind of you know tightly run things and um and, and the, you go to like you can go to some conferences and you're like okay i've literally learned nothing but like, you go to quite a lot but at least at these you, you i don't think you're going to learn completely different new things otherwise you'd go to something out of your like out of your area um but you always pick up some great nuggets and quite often some some good sort of tips for working with clients and stuff like that as well i think mm-hmm. um yeah 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 no i agree i agree to say i mean I think I learn a lot still. Like, I don't just pick up just a few notes. I definitely learn more than that because I think most most of the topics you go on, uh, yeah, I think most most of the topics you, you're going to learn a reasonable amount. I mean, some of the ones that are kind of a bit more like rock star built in terms of like you know they're just getting a, a, a well known speaker rather than someone that's really specialist in a clinical area like some of them have been. You probably learn less on those ones. So the likes of Alan Aragon, if we're allowed to say his name anymore after his faux pas. Um, hopefully most people listening will understand what that means um, obviously like Guinea was brilliant Stefan Guinea, um, but if you've read his book you probably knew most of the stuff that he was certainly at high level in terms of like the key messages you probably knew all of those um, same a little bit with Spencer Nadolski and same a bit with Krieger those bits are picked up but I thought oh that's really interesting but they were kind of like regurgitating a lot of the stuff that if you follow their work anyway you kind of all would probably already know most of their things which is a bit disappointing, especially with Guillain because he was always he was very much billed as like new material and it's not stuff, but actually end up just being like a lot of stuff out of the book and plugging his book. But this is why I like this one, and this is also why I was gutted. The only one I've missed so far out of the six or seven that I now had was the other clinical one, um, 
because you do learn way more because they are yeah. more specialists. So this one being like very much like like the topic says, health at every age. So specific nutrition for adolescents and for um, obviously perimenopausal people and stuff. Um, and obviously for the elderly, for for Ollie's talk, we'll say elderly, I don't know if it was, it's a, in, in, in kind of like the more aging. Aging, yeah. Um, um, it was, it, it, yeah. like there was loads there which I took away more uh, in them. Uh, albeit like Ollie's, so we'll go, should we go through them each one by rather than just but this way? So we'll go through a little bit like in terms of um, the, the speakers um, and the content and stuff. And then um, maybe what we kind of liked most about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, yes. Let's uh, let's do that. So, starting off with the first one, which was um, nutrition in children or adolescents. Um, but this one kind of focused more do you on. Want to say who it was? Sarah Fuller. Sarah Fuller. <laughs> so Sarah. Uh, Fuller. I, I, haven't, I haven't got that written down. No, Sarah Fuller. She's a um, specialist uh, dietitian in eating disorders. She worked at um, I can't remember what, what one of the hospitals, and then I think she worked at hospital, and then. I'm trying to remember what she said now. Like she's in the start, in like yeah, then started doing NHS her own consultancy clinic. stuff, doesn't she? Yeah, she's she's in an NHS clinic in Bedfordshire. Um, oh, where... yeah, it was it was Bedfordshire? Cause she kept joking because she was talking a lot of places. She kept making jokes around Luton and Bedfordshire, and they were all the places. Obviously, I was sitting next to Dan. Um, basically, his area. <laughs> <laughs> she gets saying how basically how bad the nutrition is in that area. Yeah, And yeah, so it was interesting because she she talked about uh, a thing called ARFID, which is avoidance restrictive food intake disorder. Intake disorder. That's it. Um, which is something that I think people have seen but just class it as fussy eating, but it's kind of like going beyond that. Yeah. Um, I, I, we, I've seen it through, one, it was, there was a very, very tiny, more of a hat tip than anything, but a, a section in the, the um, Matt Nutrition Uni stuff. So I guess we've learned a little bit around in one of the modules there, but I'll be honest, it was no, nothing in depth in terms of, unless you really want to specialise and do your own research on it, you wouldn't really know enough just from that course. But Yeah, yeah. And this was really interesting. So basically it was like, next level fussy eating i suppose is kind of like a very simplistic way of looking at it so um it was kind of the the way they described it was basically children or and adults as well um but obviously she went with the the, the lean towards children where there's nothing you can do to get them eating foods other than what they eat and the nine times out of ten they're very beige foods it's basically like chicken nuggets and chips and bread and they won't eat anything but that you can't bribe them you can't threaten them there's nothing you can do to get them to eat anything else uh whereas fussy eating you know if you took the playstation away from them they probably would then go and eat their peas um yeah or cry about it but eat them um so yeah so that was that was very very interesting as you kind of went through the telltale signs, the um, just, kind of just, background just on of it. The, just on the yeah. fussy eating versus Arfid bit. So I guess like it's probably worth saying for anyone listening that's interested in it. Like she kind of explained that like there are the differences between like fussy eating Arfid because you say well, what's the difference then? If like if people are just basically like avoiding or restrictive um, like in food intake, so basically they have this disorder that makes them basically be either avoid or restrict food intake. And a lot of the reasons is because they just, you know, like people would expect, they don't like textures, tastes, smells, and that type of stuff. Like, is that not just fussy eating? Well, she tried to explain that actually the, the difference is, like, fussy eaters can usually, like, maintain their weight, whereas people are offered, if you take their food away, 
they won't like Ed just kind of said about the PlayStation joke. They won't eat. Like whereas some of us eat, will probably still find stuff to eat. Um, as in, but if you take away the foods that people with Arfid will eat, and then therefore leaves them with no other choices but to eat other stuff, they just wouldn't eat it. So like, obviously, as well, like fussy and even if they are fussy they'll probably still get enough nutrition to not be malnutritioned um they generally don't need like supplementation usually doesn't affect their social life too much like like fear isn't really like, the key driver as to to why they're not eating food necessarily they're just obviously a bit fussy to say um and also like they a lot of fussy eating they'll grow out of whereas with arfid um that's not really the case for for most of those things like they they won't eat their food as i said they will often become malnutrition because they wouldn't eat enough food. So obviously sometimes that then can might need real clinical support because obviously if they might end up being hospitalized, say, um, they might need supplementation. Usually a stuff it will affect their social life because fear is such a driving factor in, in terms of eating those foods and the potential outcomes of having those foods. And it might be something that actually goes through into their adulthood rather than kind of something they just they almost grow out of. So there is a big difference between the two. What I thought was interesting, what she said, is how Arfid is very linked to a lot of, um, um, I was going to say mental health disorders, but I don't know if that's the right, that's not the right phrase. Um, uh, what am I saying? What am I saying? Just kind of like anxiety, anxiety disorders, autism, ADHD, that type of stuff. What would you call that? A, I don't know if it's a disease or whether it's a disorder or what, or they're diseases or disorders. I don't know. Sorry, I'm being really on PC here, aren't I? You're gonna you're gonna offend somebody with whatever you say, aren't you? Probably. Yeah. Um, I I don't know why I can't think how to categorise them. Dis- disabilities, probably. It's like I don't know if anxiety disorders, disability, it's not. But autism, I guess, and ADHD might be considered disabilities. But anyway, you, people know what I mean. So like, Arfid is often also very much like coincides or linked or um, correlated with people that have those disorders or or dis- like disabilities, basically. So. different differences within themselves yeah. and i think like certainly anecdotally like i've, I've got um uh, he's not really a family member but he's basically like my um uh, my wife's mum's boyfriend's son so call him out work, why don't you yeah work that one out um <laughs> he's, he, no, he's got asperger's basically and there's lots of things about his personality that we from what he suffers with asperger's which is like related, related to, to his, his eating, eating Appetites, appetites and stuff as well. God, I've just got a really bad echo. I'm about myself. I can hear myself. Um, I hope that's not a podcast. Um, but yeah, it, that, I kind of like, anecdotally, it does kind of make sense, actually. Yeah, like he, he very much and has she described in terms of the way he eats and even some of his personality stuff and being very, like, neurotic or not neurotic, um, specific about stuff and very matter of fact. And, you know, it kind of comes through the way he eats as well. And he's a very, he's like, a very tall, like, lean individual, lean, bit, like basically like, doesn't, doesn't doesn't really eat, very conscious, very conscious about, about what he will eat or what he won't eat. Eddie there? Eddie there? Hello? Edward. Edward! Can you hear me? I can hear Hello? you now. What happened there? You can hear me now. Sorry. I, I don't know. I'm just not the jack on my headphones. Um... I was going to say, oh yeah, yeah. So, like a few things that she mentioned about them, where you're just saying being very neurotic about things. Uh, you're saying like a lot of the time they won't have their foods touching. So if they do start to integrate other foods, which you can do over time, um, but it's like a very, very slow process of months and months and months of um, like playing with the food, touching the food, put it in their mouth, spitting it out, um, chewing it, and then you know little bits, and then maybe spitting it out, and then managing to swallow it, and then having 
more than a little bit of it. Like this takes months and months and months to be able to do. Um, and but she was saying then like how straight away in her clinics when she has them coming in and she's they're eating and stuff, she'll have like kind of like prison tray type things where um, they have all the food separated so none of the food touches because if the food touches then it's contaminated and they won't eat it. Just just for yeah. people listening, that it doesn't mean everyone with Arfid suffers that, but it might be a common no. thing. Yeah, yeah. Should, you know, because you might say that actually a lot of people don't like their beans touching their bread in their beans on toast or stuff like that. I don't know. I remember mm. someone used to have beans in a, a in like a bowl and their toast separate because they'd dip it rather than have it on it. Stuff like that. <laughs> I'm not sure you can really call that like Arfid. All that might be. No, I don't know. no, yeah. It's it's like anything though, isn't it? If you search your symptoms, you you're gonna die. Like whatever symptoms you got, you're you're gonna die. It's, it's one of those, isn't it? So you search your symptoms. It, so it was funny how you say about that. Like so, when Alex has chili, she has the rice on one side and the chili on the other side. She doesn't want them mixed. I do that. But I will Weird. probably mix it as I eat it. So. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So then you get some rice on the fork and or spoon, and, and they get does, some. Does chili. she eat yeah. her rice separate and then her chili separate? You know what? I'm normally too focused on what I'm eating. I bet you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm sure she does the same with spag bol as well. Like she'll have the spaghetti and then the bolognese next to it. Weird. Interesting. That I don't do. Spag bol. I will always put the spaghetti on the bottom and then stick the bolognese on top. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah, okay. Um, so just Arfid one thing key thing that I thought was interesting as well which I didn't know was it's not always about food either so I said around kind of like the links to other either mental disorders or diseases um, she did say things that might also be with other things and the example she gave was like products like medicine didn't she where she said she there was a case study or I don't know if case study or an, or an anecdote or whatever she she said about someone had had Arfid or, or ha- like was diagnosed with Arfid and they had to. They went to get some. Was it prescription? Was it? Was it? it? Uh, yeah, I think it's like some sort of. Um, I mean, fluoxetine is a um, antibiotic, isn't it? But basically, didn't have the branding and the usual pack they had. So a pharmacist had to spend two hours trying to explain to her that the package they were trying to give her is exactly the same, but it's just different brand and packaging. But they were like, wouldn't have the fact that it's not. The, it's like, oh, it's not the same thing, and just basically wouldn't accept it. It took two hours to explain it to them. So it's kind of like, it, yeah. you know, it's there's there's more to Arfid than just obviously food as well. Yeah, 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 and I think they went with that. They went for like the ingredients and everything. Showed exactly they were all exactly the same. It was just yeah, different color packaging. Mm. Um, and I think they still yeah, she had to wait them for, for the other ones to come in. Yeah. So yeah, I also thought what was interesting is her kind of like strap line of like basically good enough is okay. Yeah. So to kind of explain around like the fact that people with Arfid won't necessarily eat enough, they won't get enough nutrition kind of like getting them to eat anything is okay and like not trying to force them to have what you would consider an optimal or even a healthy diet like basically if they'll only eat chips and chicken nuggets it's kind of okay for them to only eat chips and chicken nuggets and just do do your best basically which i thought was kind of like from a practical standpoint from a clinician it's quite i don't know um it's a bit strange isn't it but also it, refreshing for refreshing is probably the word I was going to say because it is you yeah. kind of think well no surely they've got to do more than that but actually it's quite refreshing to think that you know they're not they're not forcing things that don't necessarily work and that actually just kind of the main thing is because like, she kind of gave a bit of a hierarchy I think didn't she in terms of saying right the first thing that you need to do is make sure that basically they're getting enough energy they're, getting, they're eating enough calories that's kind of like your main priority because people with Arfid is probably something they struggle with a lot because they just don't eat enough food um, because of obviously the severe restriction that they have. 
that's kind of your main thing. Then it's a case of like, okay, well, you know, how, what variety of nutrients can we start to get into them? What will they eat? And then it's kind of a case of then exposing them to other stuff and gradually trying over time to help adjust their diet to obviously yeah. to something more what you would would obviously hope it to be. So that was quite interesting in in mm. kind of that whole well, good enough is is good enough. Yeah, because um, I, I guess like as a as a parent, you would be probably quite disappointed in in terms of feeling like you're not doing enough and that you're oh my god i can't get my child to eat it's, it's all my fault when actually you know good enough it should be good enough yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, you know what reminded well what came to mind when she was talking about this was um when fran did her episode on her anorexia many years ago mm-hmm. and when she was saying she was given basically like a kind of a meal structure by the dietitian she was um handed to uh and she was saying well you've got to eat this type of biscuit and she was like well i don't like those can i eat those and the dietitian was a bit like oh no they're not on the plan no you can't uh, have a cereal bar you've got to have that digestive yeah yeah and uh, it reminds me of that and like any decent dietitian would just be like yeah sure you, you want to eat yeah <laughs> go for it so um yeah yeah but i guess a lot of that thing in terms of good enough also aligns with like her thoughts in terms of like not pressurizing them to eat not using things like guilt and threats or trying to force feed because there's no there's nothing you can do with someone with with arfid like dino's arfid to actually get them to eat foods if they don't want to it's not like they are just fussy like for them she said like it's like holding a bowl of pus in front of someone you couldn't get someone to eat it or drink it for for anything like and they a lot of money yeah yeah and it might be you might think it's just a bit less come on but they literally see it as it's like something so horrific they just can't have it so like the kind of force feeding or guilt or threats and stuff um and even she said i think that she said there was some evidence that shows that using try like tools to persuade or prompt like saying well done or whatever else also um, actually reduces intake compared to children that aren't kind of prompted and that children are left to kind of eat on their own and stuff like that. So kind of like that goes against what most of us would think we should do with mm. like our own children, say, or, or with people rather than necessarily like kids of our feed. But it's interesting to think how that kind of goes against the grain a bit. Yeah, yeah, because uh, if like you see, so take a, I don't know, like a, a very young child, so not newborn, a little bit older, just starts eating solids and they have a bit of, strawberry you'd be like oh my god amazing you'd be clapping and cheering and making the child feel amazing whereas she was like no no no, you need to do completely the opposite because they don't want it to be seen as something different as something special they really want it to you know this is just normal but you give them the food if they eat it don't mention like don't mention it if they don't eat it don't mention it um uh, yeah so yeah yeah just yeah don't make any reference um did you, I was going to say, well, we, yeah, to kind of round that up, did you, so when she was saying about um, people who, like, obviously you're not sure whether to diagnose, like basically she said go to the GP first. A lot of the GPs won't refer to dietitians and a lot of the dietitians aren't good enough to then sort of sort this out. But she did, uh, there was a charity, wasn't there, that you could diagnose was it was yeah. it with the arfid yeah what uh, well, did you no, I think um, I don't that? know if it was arfid or whether it was the fussy eating side but oh, what was that charity called uh, probably on the slides I don't know if I wrote it down actually yeah so basically she said that you can go to the GP the 
they may or may not refer because basically nutrition and GP, like it's funnily enough actually so in in the evening uh i was talking to a uh oh i can't remember what she said she was now um i was many gins down um but basically she was a, a doctor relatively newly qualified i think she was f2 i think um and just like working in general medicine and i said how much nutrition do you learn on your five-year medical course and she said because I said, I believe you only do one module on nutrition. And she says, if we're lucky, it's not even that. It's a few references to nutrition and to kind of eating and that sort of stuff. So GPs, they're not specialized in this at all. So a lot of the time they kind of go a bit like they brush it off a little bit um, instead of then uh, referring you on to a, a dietitian clinic. Um, so she said that this charity, which we will find and we can put in the notes, um, she said it was uh, – that was kind of the charity to refer to and somebody will get back to you within like a week or whatever it was or a few days um and you can uh you, you can kind of not re- reports the wrong word but you can highlight people whether it's your own children whether it's a you know your, your niece or nephew and, and all this and like you know or the neighbor um and it's kind of all quite confidential and yeah it, was, it sounded like a, a good way to go about things and you get to the right person straight away. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that she deals with these because she's on the board for this charity. So when these things come in, she'll be she'll basically get it in her inbox, and then she can go and, and speak to the people and try and basically get them the help that they need. Because um, she used the story of a postman um, referred one girl because he noticed these pills or like what sounded like pills come in like really really regularly. And she was having, it wasn't diuretics, was it? What was it? Um, no, it was, wasn't it? Diuretics? Was it diuretics, yeah. Oh, um, well, they, and, no, well, they, no, they might have just been like weight loss pills, weren't they? Like hung, yeah. Pills, basically hunger suppressants or something. Yes, that was it. And she, it was a crazy number, like 300 a day she was taking. Well, no, it was quite that, but yeah. It was like, I, I think he said it something was, like 180 it was, a week or something like it was a, that. A 300 a week, was it? Something like that. I don't know. Any, put it this way. Yeah, it's, it's enough for the postman to think, I'm delivering a lot of pills to this, this house. Maybe I should be worried. Yeah, and he referred her, which was, and then basically like, helpless, really helpless girl. Um, well, so, did, yeah. Did, no, didn't, did, didn't refer Basically, I think that the postman alerted the, obviously the owner of the house because I think he said basically they were being delivered when the owner of the house, i.e. the parents, weren't there and the kid was just collecting them and the parents had no idea that they were getting these deliveries every time, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, and then highlighted it because the mother happens to be home early or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, but anyway, so I guess like just to round that bit up a bit. Um, obviously, Arfid and fussy are very different. Ones obviously can can cause quite severe, um, catastrophic events. I suppose in terms of a kid not eating enough and being hospitalised and potentially death. Um, whereas fussy eating generally probably wouldn't ever get that far. Um, I think obviously with fussy eating is, is one of the things she kind of stood out, and this is like probably useful for anyone with kids to kind of put their mind at rest a little bit. But it's normal, and like she, they said, like you've got to consider that kids' like appetites are regulated like over a week or a month, not over a day. Some days they won't eat, some some days they'll eat loads. It's kind of like it, they they kind of eat. That's not like a really static um, or like continuous pattern of eating with kids. It's just not how they do it. And like anyone with kids will probably think, yeah, actually they don't. Like mine's just, mine sometimes will just feel like she's just grazing, don't want to eat anything. Next thing, she's just constantly eating. So that's kind of good to know. Um, yeah. And, and I guess like she said, like toddlers will develop fears of new food. Sometimes they'll eat foods that they've, they've they wouldn't eat before, and vice versa. Which again, I said to Dan, I remember said to him like, there's foods that she'll eat at nursery, she won't eat at home. 
and that kind of one of the things that that kind of stood out as well where she said like under understanding fussy eating like parents can often make it a lot worse by like giving too much attention to like food and too much attention to the like meal times or phases of refusing food so basically like playing it down is probably the best thing you can do and not worrying like kids don't want to eat just don't let you don't force them you don't like make it into a big deal you don't make meal times like a huge issue and stuff like that and i think that's probably something that a lot of us parents don't do very well at like when our kid don't want to eat we're like constantly going just eat that just one more good just do that or you can have that you can have your dessert and that probably isn't the best thing for them in all, in all honesty yeah it was, it was quite interesting when she brought up the calorie requirements for children sort of through sort of babies all the way through to um well basically when they hit 18 and uh, like a rough rough calorie requirements that you know everybody's slightly different a bit like adults um but when they're saying like teenagers need like well over 3,000 calories um it's like crazy amount of food but then when i think back to when i was a teen like especially if you're sporty as well like she like the amount of food i used to eat is crazy part part as well she said about the amount of like glucose or the amount of extra calories that you that a lot of these people with these these like arfid might burn because of the anxiety and stuff like you mm-hmm. think your brain goes into overdrive that burns with more glucose like we know that a trait of anxious people is like fidgeting and being very like ner- like that kind of like nervous movement all the time so there's no wonder that their their requirements are a lot higher and okay i suppose that's probably something that like if you're working with people like that you, you might even consider the fact that they need more calories than maybe someone else yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, shall we? Um, yeah. Shall we move on to the next talk? Because we've spent quite a lot of time yes. talking about that. Yeah, it was an interesting talk, and I think going into that in a bit more detail, or just like adolescence nutrition, would be a really good topic, or several topics. If we could get some more sort of specialists on that, yeah, that'd be cool. We're forty minutes in. Unbelievable. Bloody hell. Jesus. Um, Maybe we could do two podcasts on this. Well, we probably could. <laughs> we won't. But... <laughs> um, so the next one was uh, from Ollie Wittard, Oliver Wittard. Um, and he is a senior lecturer, I believe, at a um, King's Cross, was it, in London? He's just moved to King's University. King's Cross is a train station. King, King's College, <laughs> I did say. King's Cross. Sorry, it's, now it's college. I didn't even mean to say yeah, yeah. King's College, yeah, because he was from, like, University of Stirling or something, wasn't he? So, yes, um, yeah. So he, he, he was basically talking about um, cutting-edge nutrition for the ageing population. What were the standout things for, the, for you on... His talk. Uh, basically, it was, it was mostly talking around protein requirements for those who are sort of like forty and above. Um, so aging, and it sounds kind of scary when you talk about forty and above. But, yeah, when so, I'm thirty-seven. I was going to say you, you're getting that way, aren't you? Well, um, Thirty-six, actually. About <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was just mainly talking about protein requirements and just sort of saying how important it is to. Uh, be active to uh, do all the things we kind of like they, they say that children should be doing as well like should you be doing bits of resistance work jumping and stuff like that and um, and basically yeah saying about how like being active and even just going for walks and stuff like that can just help retain a lot of muscle mass um, if you know we're not talking about like retaining bodybuilder size muscle mass just retaining a very normal average amount of muscle mass which you will then need to help uh, help you move better when you're older. Help you like reduce the risk of general falls. Yeah. Of yeah, general well-being. So, so. Just, just on that, because obviously one of the, the he, he showed a graph which basically showed like yes, there is a small decline for a lot of people when they reach of like I don't know. I think he said fifty plus. Say there's a small decline in like bone density and muscle mass, which you know we've talked about before in enough times in terms of how important it is. 
Um, we've we've spoke to obviously Richie Kerwin around kind of like sucking being obesity before. So if anyone wants to go back and listen to that, they can. We obviously had other uh, episodes where we've talked about the importance of like protein in in the elderly people um, because of onset sarcopenia and stuff. And he he kind of showed this graph where there was a small decline over time. But he said some of the biggest impacts are when there are periods of like inactivity, like things like. I don't know hospital visits where you know if someone has a fall and then they can't move for two or three weeks there's a rapid decline from that inactivity so just to back up your point how important is that people still do something in terms of movement ideally it would be obviously something resistance based or or strength based to kind of keep up more stimulus for more muscle mass but something is always better than nothing and some of the like that graph kind of showed like the biggest thing is periods of activity rather than necessarily you know not doing any exercise in terms of like this how it affects because you can make this graph kind of had this like slow decline and then it had like a period of inactivity where a massive drop and then it kind of slowed decline again as obviously i guess they come out of hospital and then there might be more susceptible then to another injury or another fall or another problem then another massive decline it's like a perpetuating cycle of like poor well-being mm, yeah 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 no and it made me think of my nan so Earlier this year, she ended up spending the uh, best part of a month in hospital. Um, and she was quite inactive before that, um, just through a few of the health things going on. She's, what, 87, something like that? So she's she's, she's knocking on a bit. Um, but and then when she came out of hospital, she was so slow at moving, and she's, like, so stiff and achy and could just had zero mobility at all. Like, she, she had to be helped absolutely everywhere. She was on a frame. But now she's had health workers coming in and getting her to move around a lot more. Move around like she still lives on her own and does that, like everything on her own and everything. Um, so getting her moving around and everything, and she's gone from sort of like barely walking on a frame, falling over all the time, to whizzing around on a walking stick. And sometimes she doesn't even need that. Like yeah. you sort of struggle to keep up with her. Um, so it just shows that even just being active and not just you know sitting in a chair all the time uh, can really, really help. And I know this probably isn't really going to impact anybody too directly now um, who's listening to this, um, unless we do have a uh, an aged population of listeners that we, we're unaware of. Um, but it's stuff to think about in the future, maybe 10 years, 15, 20 years, or your own parents or grandparents. Yeah, I, I, I say to my parents, like, even though my parents are in, like 60-ish, about 60 um, I say to my parents, like, you might not feel old. No, I don't. I don't really see them as old, but I, 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 this onset starts fifty plus. Also, like, if you can get ahead, if you're young now and you can get ahead, then that will it will set you up in older age. You'll have mm. obviously start from a, you'll start from a higher place with more muscle mass, and more bone density, so you can actually afford to lose more in that period and be in a better place than someone that didn't. So, I don't think this is something that we're saying you should be. Oh, I'll worry about it in my. 40s 50s or 60s whatever else because actually you should be doing it now yeah yeah i think if you look at like people who retire at say 65 and become very inactive they just spend all the time in the house the they don't kind of do a lot if you look at their mobility compared to somebody who is still working 10 years later or who go off and do a lot um, I, I think if you compared the two, I think there'd be huge, huge differences. So, like, I look at my granddad who is seventy-six, not married to the nan I was talking about before, uh, on the other side of the family. He is uh, seventy-six, still works three or four days a week in haulage, um, sold his company, and then works for that company <laughs> still. Um, he goes out on the bike and probably does best part of sixty, seventy miles a week on the bike. 
Um, and he's fit as a fiddle, runs around everywhere. Like, yeah, you'd think he's 10 years younger than what he is. Um, but then compare that him to somebody who potentially retired at 65, 10 years on, very sedentary, doesn't really have any activities that they do, doesn't really have many hobbies, just sits in a lot, watches a lot of daytime TV. Uh, they're probably hunched over, the, the mobility's less, and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's interesting comparing that to some you know, people who are very active and, and you know eat well and everything compared to, to those who are a lot more sedentary. So we've obviously done to death the importance of like worrying about your um, physical well-being before you get older. So in terms of what did Ollie recommend in some of the key points, because I guess he wasn't kind of talking about everything nutrition for aging, aging client. He obviously picked out a couple of key points and stuff that one, his... Um, his clinic or his his I don't know his work has studied basically in terms of I guess I'm I'm pointing at the Omega study stuff that he was doing, but he also talked to rings like protein quality. So do you want to kind of pick out the bits that you took took home from that? Yeah, so he's chatted about uh, kind of protein quality in terms of uh, meat based protein compared to plant based protein, um, and just kind of uh, the how much protein you need sorry how many grams of that that kind of food you need to get um adequate amounts of protein to spike muscle protein synthesis which again something we've spoken about quite a lot um and he was sort of saying you know you need what was it like 400 sorry four thousand grams of potatoes to get a two and a half kilo or to no 2.8 kilos it was yeah yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, half a half a five kilo bag of, of potatoes, which is a hell of a lot when you look at it like that. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's something like five thousand calories worth of potatoes to spike to get optimal like leucine um, amino acid for for like muscle building. Yeah, <laughs> but, for for one meal, not for the day, for, yeah, for one, one meal. meal. Whereas you can eat a chicken breast and get exactly the same. So, <laughs> the yeah. So there's been a few jokes about like potatoes and stuff just recently I've uh, seen banded around uh, the old Instagram especially, uh, especially bear in mind we've got a few Irish friends lol <laughs> just mildly uh, racist <laughs> um, so there was that and then he looked at kind of your more stereotypical uh, protein sources from uh, the plant-based world of you know your, your legumes, uh, soy, and things like that, and how it was saying that they're not all complete proteins. So you want to mix and match on on some of your plant-based proteins to uh, to get a, a complete protein um, for, for for again. When we say muscle building, now we're not talking about it in terms of the gym, bodybuilding. We're just talking in terms of maintaining what muscle you've got, yeah. not losing it, so, turning the protein over in the muscles. Yeah, because I guess obviously what we've said is like basically as you get older, you become more resistant to like anabolic stimuluses. So, or stimuli, sorry, is probably the correct phrase. Um, and obviously anabolic stimuli is basically comes down to protein intake, training, as in like anything resistant training. Um, they're kind of like your two main stimulus you get for um, basically like protein balance so basically the amount of muscle mass you hold and obviously this 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 kind of like sarcopenia loss of muscle mass is kind of underpinned basically by having a net protein balance because you're you're more resistant to the nutritional side stimulus so basically you have to have more protein to get the same like positive impacts to to kind of keep your muscle mass or grow muscle mass um and the same with training potentially so you kind of have to do more of them to get the same um impact as you would do if you were young which is why obviously it's a lot easier to put muscle mass on while you're younger than it is when you're older so he was kind of sort of talking about like you say the plant-based stuff versus animal-based stuff now if you're already um more resistant then you probably don't want to be having what you consider an inferior or, or less than optimal like protein source 
which is why he's saying like basically for plant-based stuff because they don't contain like other than soy quinoa and i can't think of any others there aren't any vegetarian uh, or vegan um sources of like air quotes protein because you know you wouldn't necessarily you would never call quinoa um a protein source it's a carb source it's mainly carbs it's got like 10 percent protein but the protein it does have is good high quality and soy is obviously a full amino acid profile as well so that's a good quality protein as well but that being said because they may be not as good in terms of having um as many of the like the key fundamental amino acids like leucine is is obviously one of the ones that we're, we're kind of key for the muscle building so that's basically the signal to turn on like a muscle building um then you kind of have to have more of them. So his his kind of slides basically said, look, animal proteins are better than plant-based for stimulating muscle protein synthesis. So you kind of want to make sure that you're getting a decent amount of animal protein sources if obviously your dietary behaviors allow you to, i.e., you know, you're not a vegetarian or a vegan. Um, I think he went through some of the slides to, to show some like low different studies that show like skim milk was better at stimulating protein after exercise than, than soy. Whey was better than casein, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. He said whey was also better than soy. Um, so And it said casein was also better than wheat. Beef was better than soy. And basically, the upshot is animals are better than plants for, for anabolism. <laughs> so from all the evidence that we have. So you kind of like, that goes against what the game changers said, because they said that plant-based are complete proteins and they're just as good, which is bullshit. They just lied. So, But we've obviously done that to death for the episode with Luke. Um <laughs> Yeah. I think we obviously knew that already in terms of like none of us were surprised by that. Um, I think what I did like though and was the bit where he said about the protein contents of other things, i.e. termites and crickets. Because <laughs> he was talking about potential other sources of protein that might be good. And I was amazed at how high like in leucine termites was. It was like, why aren't, why aren't people making a termite powder? Well, funny you say this. So I said this to Dan Osmond from uh, Fitness Unfiltered. Don't plug podcast. their podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so when I was talking to Dan uh, like, as he was showing this, so I was in Oxford at uh, Blenheim Palace at uh, BBC Countryfile Live uh, for work earlier in the year. And there was a guy a couple of stalls away from where we were who was selling basically like... Uh, bugs like dried bugs that you could eat and he also incorporated those in baking and he was basically saying like those high protein brownies and stuff like that um and uh, I, I i didn't he was charging stupid money for them they were like five they're probably, six they're probably quid. expensive to make well yeah yeah not just for the brownies but like the pots of the pots of bugs because i'd happily bought a couple and, and had a little try um but they were yeah five or six pounds for a little pot with like two or three like crickets in or whatever yeah. so uh, it, it was quite expensive um maybe, but, maybe that's uh, the way yeah. forward for for protein supplements or even you know just general protein intake in the future because obviously there's, there's a lot of talk about climate change and farming and um agriculture whereas maybe it's going to be far more efficient to be eating crickets or termites all the time well maybe but and then if you're taking them out of the ecosystem or well, i suppose if you farm them it's probably yeah. just a lot more um or a lot less harmful to the environment as although there's obviously a lot of debate around 
different types of farming that some of some farming can be very good for the environment actually and replenish soils and actually take carbon dioxide out depending upon the type of farming methods but obviously the mass produced mono farming stuff we do isn't quite as good yeah anyway that's a different different subject for another day um but yeah maybe i said i'm just interested in i wouldn't mind trying to turn my um protein shakes see what that's like i've had cricket protein bars that's all right it just tastes a bit like one of those eat natural like fruit pressed bars things really did it have lumps in or was it like blended no, through i think it was like powdered like blended yeah. in there so like to be honest like i say it was pretty much like a pressed fruit bar but it's only like 14 grams of protein for a couple hundred calories so that's obviously the practical thing about plant-based stuff is is it practical because you know the example about potatoes like a lot of the plant-based proteins you get or protein sources if you're trying to control calories or restrict calories sometimes it'd be quite difficult to get enough protein and still restrict calories because of the amounts of carbs often they come with or even some fats but um yeah obviously that's one of the considerations that he did bring up in his his presentation didn't he yeah it's like the whole like oh broccoli's got just as much protein in a steak that you see some absolutely ridiculous propaganda yeah. it's like well how many heads of broccoli do you actually need to eat 17 kilos <laughs> yeah you'd be piss, pissing green for quite a while <laughs> um so I, I I obviously mentioned about the research that they've done on omega threes um, and muscle protein synthesis, which I thought was really interesting. So obviously there was some research that he quoted where I think one study where they get they gave people five grams of omega threes per day for four weeks, um, and it enhanced like muscle protein synthesis in elder elderly population, but it didn't I think in if, unless I'm. I haven't written it down in my notes, but I'm trying to go from memory. I think it didn't in younger generation. It's kind of like, well, actually, maybe for older people then having... I mean, five grams is probably a reasonably high dose of fish oils for people. And obviously, it is in a four-week study, I guess, long, longitudinal. You have to consider, is there... We, we don't necessarily know what the effect will be. But from, like, a, a mechanistic perspective, it enhances muscle protein synthesis. So that probably means that over the long term, it's probably going to be a good thing. So it might be the same. It's interesting because it's not something that I've ever heard or considered before. Didn't know. And obviously they said like this, the EPA component of fish oils, which might seem to have like an anabolic component. So basically help augment this muscle protein synthesis res response. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it either. Um, what what kind of gets me is that it's not in the, the younger population, but then it, it, it is effective in the older. Yeah. I, I wonder what changes in, through life and at what, what point and, and that, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it, it kind of feels like, or it makes sense, like, basically the EPA, if that is the anabolic component, must just do something along the lines of, like, attenuate atrophy, like, or, like, basically help attenuate that sarcopenic resistance or anabolic resistance that you get for sarcopenia. Which is why yeah. it basically does nothing in younger people, but in older people, it kind of stops that, that atrophy of muscle. Yeah, it'd be interesting as well whether the patients that they were talk, uh, had doing the study whether they increase their protein intake when they started taking the omegas as well. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't be honest, I can't remember whether he went through too much of like the study design and what they did and like did they get him to train where they went training before and stuff like that. I can't remember. But regardless, obviously he's presenting on it and he did he did mention quite a few different studies that have all studied it and they all came up with very similar outcomes. So it, oh, yeah. it doesn't yeah. it does definitely feel like there's a thing there in that if you're worried about obviously again like sarcopenia and muscle muscle loss or muscle mass uh, loss or bone density loss with age maybe up in your, your fish oils or taking some fish oils if you don't already or making sure you're at least getting enough might be a good idea like i say it's got five grams a day is quite a high dose i think most people wouldn't be taking that much but um especially if it's the epa component just get some high strength ones that way you get more epa in a in a, in a smaller fish oil dose if that's a problem but 
Yeah, yeah, and, and it's good to just have fish oils anyway, um, regardless of your age. For sure. Uh, yeah. So. Um, okay, I think that's most of of Ollie's talk. I think it, basically the 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 roundup of that is you probably need more protein than you think. Animal protein sources are better than plant protein sources. Um, and maybe omega threes might help in elderly population in terms of muscle mass retention. So, just quickly, then we've got something you said: uh, eat more protein than you think. If you want some actual figures, um, so the RDA, the uh, recommended daily amount, is 0.8 grams per kilo of body weight, um, which we've always said is very low. And he agreed. Um, he was he said that you should be eating between one and 1.2, which would be sort of like a general amount for uh, untrained. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. But then, if you went into a disease state uh, where um, was this for when you kind of basically as you well, as you kind of get older and and as things start failing you a little bit in your body and stuff, uh, and as you, I don't think this was because then he went on for severe illness or injury, which is like more bed rested and, and stuff like that. But kind of what he said is, I've just got a disease state here, so say this with a pinch of salt, the disease bit. But he said then from 1.2 to 1.5, and if you had severe illness or injuries, so say you broke a leg or something like that, or you were bedridden for a while, then eating two grams per kilo of body weight uh, per day. So, um, yeah, just to give some actual facts and uh, some actual figures there. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, like that always comes in like the, you know, we 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 usually recommend like 0.3 grams per kilo per meal, and obviously if you then meal, do that over, um, like five to six meals per day, that generally gets you in the amounts we would recommend for most people that train and want to maximise like protein synthesis, um, and also help with satiety as well. And he obviously said like you might want to up that to 0.4 for older people to basically make sure that you're kind of combating this anabolic resistance that you have to protein. So you basically need more to do the same job. So mm. that helps. Yeah. 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 Right. So, and then we had Sarah back to talk about dieting language and socially acceptable restriction in children and adolescents. Now, obviously bear in mind that this was after lunch. My memory's a bit more fuzzier. I, yeah, didn't write any notes for this, but I do want whatever she had for lunch because uh, she was on one. Yeah, she was like, she had snorted a few lines, I think. She was, she was, wait. We would obviously love to get her on, so maybe we'll reach out and try and get her on to talk about some of this stuff in more detail. But um, What, snorting lines? No, not that. But I've made loads of notes, so I can go through some of the stuff that good, um, good. that she kind of talked about. So it's kind of like so basically, like I say, diet and language and the way you talk to children, and then basically socially acceptable restriction in children how it affects them. Because I guess like like if you've got overweight children, it's really hard as a parent to think how do you deal with that because you can't just go you're you're obviously overweight child stop eating like you can't treat them like you would your dog or your you know your pet. So it's not that easy. And she kind of talked through a lot of the stuff in terms of like. Um, uh, why language is so important obviously when we talk about food and diet so she kind of said like basically you don't want to be talking about food and diets around your children you basically want to have an emphasis on health and not kind of like appearance or diets or like a lot of the diet culture stuff which I absolutely agree with Um, I don't think it's good like if you're a parent that's dieted all your life and you're constantly talking about your weight and how you look around your children I don't think you can argue that that's going to like affect your child at some point and it might then kind of give them a self-esteem issues might even develop eating disorders themselves which is some of the stuff that she talked about some of the research that shows that if you're like 
if you suffer like parents suffer from eating disorders and low self-esteem that how often their children also develop that stuff like yeah basically yeah. significantly increased risk of developing it which you know i don't think it, it, you really need to be a rocket scientist to work that out that's probably really the case so why it's like really important to have an emphasis on health and stuff and she actually this is where i made notes mate that charity you talked about the national child measurement program Ah, that was it. That's so was it in this called. talk where she went on about it? Yes. Yeah, okay. But I guess, um, I mean, you yeah. want to emphasize to your child, like, basically, it's okay to be any size. Certain sites, the size and shapes obviously come with more risks. So that's kind of like the phrase you used, said, like, basically, there is no one size fits all. There isn't a perfect height, weight, shape, or whatever. Everyone's different. You know, these are the messages that I think most people agree and probably already know, but this is how you should talk to your child about it. But I guess there's also understanding that albeit all sizes and shapes are acceptable, some do come with more risks than others. So rather than mm. saying you're overweight and unhealthy, it's not really the case. It's kind of like more like you just have to accept the way you word it has to be different if, you, if you're speaking about it. Basically what it comes down to is kind of like language in terms of how important it is. So, Yeah, she interestingly said about the way kind of like the NHS go about things. So um, how basically like your parents get a letter saying your kid's fat. Um, deal with it sort yeah. of thing <laughs> well, if, if your child's at school and they and and school basically worried that they're overweight you get a letter sent home saying we've noticed your child's overweight so um here's some here's some literature you can read to basically help bring your child's weight down yeah it's crazy isn't it that's yeah. uh Th- things yeah. like obviously coming back to kind of like the size and shape thing in terms of like everyone's body's a different size and shape we do know that weight doesn't 100 percent indicate health it's not indicative of health like basically there isn't a perfect weight that says this is the perfect health yes we do use bmrs as kind of like a a, a guide to how healthy someone is in terms BMI. of their, their risks of certain i suppose like diseases or disease states but there are definitely people that you might consider overweight that can be perfectly healthy and people that you consider underweight that can be perfectly healthy and vice versa there'll be there are people that might consider a healthy body weight but actually they have very poor health markers so yes I, I don't think you can get away with that there's a correlation between weight and health in terms of being seriously underweight seriously overweight but there's definitely a, a scale in the middle there where weight doesn't 100% indicate or be completely indicative of a, a good health state yeah yeah she, 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 have, she, she mentioned yeah. it as basically a j-curve didn't she where obviously like the j-curve health risks but she also said like it's funny how being lean is socially celebrated almost. So if you're underweight, it's almost socially celebrated compared to someone overweight where you're um, completely ostracized. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you just have to look at, like, I I love the example of uh, looking at some of the England rugby guys when they were seven, eight years old. And uh, there's a great one of uh, Billy Vonopola, who's you know, he's a big lad, he's a big lad. Uh, but not necessarily fat, he's just a big lad. Um, and the pictures of him when he was eight um, compared to the other kids, and these he make literally like he's like two foot taller than um, than the, the kids his own age. But if you put that in BMI, you'd be like, holy shit, this kid's morbidly obese. Like, you know, do something about it, and he'd get the fat letter. And it's like, no, he's just a big lad. <laughs> no. well, you, you look at Dan Mac. I reckon his BMI is about thirty. Oh Jesus, yeah, he'd be down as morbidly obese, but he's just a very big lad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's before you even throw in like muscle mass and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, but some some of the things she brought out as well was around kind of children being more at risk to some of this stuff purely in terms of like 
um, uh, I suppose like eating disorders, I suppose is the main thing. She's more at risk at things than eating disorders and, and kind of like body dysmorphia and those types of things. Purely because they obviously have dramatic change in the body and shape during like puberty as an example. So they can be more like anxiety prone or obsessive or, or high detail focused specifically on bodies. They haven't learned to balance risks yet because their brain's not completely developed properly. They have a very black and white thinking style, like basically good or bad or very binary. Um, and there's a risk with diet and exercise developing into an obsessive disorder as well. So these types of things, again, why I think going back to the original point of why it's so important to talk around health and talk around um, or, or talk around health and not like appearance and specifics like that because obviously these things all attenuate or not attenuate what's the opposite of attenuate these things all might basically augment or develop a lot of these problems that that obviously kids can already suffer from because they're going through this this like very quick dramatic change she used example did she about women at school and like if you, she said she made a joke about but if you're a woman at school you're the first or girl at school you're the first girl to develop breasts you know how how devastating it is at school because everyone's poking fun at you and it's kind of like the same with like boys and stuff if you're if you're like a boy that's still holding a bit of puppy fat say that can be quite bad at school as well when other kids are starting to develop more muscular physiques and stuff and you've not kind of got there yet it can be like the opposite for boys so, well, it's like when the, the the lad who's got the hairy legs first or the mustache first yeah. i was like oh you freak you're only 13 or whatever younger um <laughs> <laughs> i mean some of us were you know 18 when we got our pubes, but pubes. Can't grow a beard. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, th- this is hilarious with Movember, and you're seeing all the guys that are like at university doing it as part of like a university sports club, and they're like 18, 19, and they've managed to get like three mustache hairs. Yeah. Uh, some 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 kids probably got some bangers, and then you got some kids just like I can't grow any. <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah so it's, it's like that isn't it you know it's the same sort of thing and uh, it's nobody likes to be different nobody likes to be told they're different nobody likes to be pointed out the fact that they're different and yeah and then even more so bullied or made fun of that they're different and uh, yeah if you if you draw attention to it then it's just going to make it worse and that's when depression anxiety and all those sorts of things come into play which is not good so she also talked about socially acceptable dietary restrictions which I guess that if you think about that, what that means, it kind of gives it away a little bit in terms of, she talked about how people develop almost eating disorder symptoms or even almost eating disorders, but in a, like almost a socially acceptable manner. So she used some very good examples of like vegetarians, identifying the vegetarians for weight loss rather than kind of for ethical reasons, the same, like almost the same with veganism. Um, but she said there is, although there was no evidence in kind of like the veganism realm in terms of veganism and eating disorders, she did say there were there was a lot of correlated evidence in terms of vegetarians. So a lot of mm. vegetarians are then correlated with a lot of symptoms of eating disorders because I guess it's almost a way for them to be restrictive in their eating patterns, but it's not something they can be ostracized for because it's almost socially acceptable to be vegetarian. Like no one can argue yeah. with you if you're restricting food or calories or whatever else under the the, the premise of I'm vegetarian. I don't want to eat animals. Yeah. Um, and obviously, veganism is obviously even more extreme. So, it's kind of like, well, she 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 talked about, well, how can people help with that? And I thought it was quite like some really good questions and questioning techniques she talked about in terms of asking them, like, why do why would you want to do that diet? What do your family think? Um, like, do your family follow that diet? You know, do do you also follow like veganism specifically? She said, like, are you following those same ethical choices in non food related areas, like your clothes or makeup or, or like products you use that type of stuff so 
She, um, yeah, she is the example of um, people saying they were uh, vegan. Girls, oh yeah, I'm vegan, I'm vegan, and, and all this. And she's like, oh right, well you do know your doctor, Doc Martens or leather. Yeah, um, exactly. That, that, yeah. <laughs> Which can't like yeah. just that that might be a giveaway basically for people like if they're worried about other uh, uh, people that might be almost hiding an eating disorder under something more socially acceptable. Yeah. Like, like that then obviously there's some some key questions that are asked maybe or some some points that people might start to get a bit of a, a warning flag almost so mm, again, a lot a lot of it as well is like she talked about clean eating and orthorexia so orthorexia being um it's not obviously a um it's an obsession with clean eating almost isn't it yeah well it's it's, it's basically a hierarchy diet of saying like um Oh, I can't know how to describe it now, but yeah, I mean, an obsession with, it's not just necessarily clean eating, orthorexia is basically an obsession with all things health to the point where it's unhealthy. Um, mm. And I was going to say it's not a recognised eating disorder as such, as in it's not on the list of recognised eating disorders, orthorexia, but it is obviously become far more prominent as health and well-being, social media, and all this stuff where obviously people now kind of throw themselves into like orthorexic tendencies as a way of kind of again coping or, or dealing with potential eating disorders and stuff so i mean it's, it's guess like it's basically the fixation i know i've written here is actually fixation on righteous eating which is kind of right what orthorexia is yeah yeah like, yeah yeah, yeah. It, again with it really being one of those things that's it's not necessarily new but it's a new and it's like with the veggie thing that's going to become more and more prevalent as being vegetarian and vegan becomes more and more socially acceptable yeah. Um, but yeah. th- that that's obviously a big concern though because obviously vegetarian and vegan especially all of a sudden like being that super restrictive of your diet you're really in danger of malnutrition because you're cutting out huge food food groups so like obviously dairy obviously in veganism is obviously a massive like chunk pissing out obviously a lot of animal products obviously like meat and protein that we've suggested might then mean there's some issues there um, and I guess a lot of those things also carry like the avoidance of fats and other stuff like that and then you might you know that's not even including kind of all the self-diagnosed crap out there like people that are saying oh, i can't eat gluten or oh yes milk or dairy lactose it, it, it i suffer from that it's like that, that's obviously a huge growing i don't know movement but obviously potential uh, issue with a lot of people where they're kind of self-diagnosing these things yeah it might all again fall under these same kind of realms of of self-diagnosed things to cover up potential eating disorders or disordered eating patterns yeah i think they're only going to get bigger and bigger um until it almost stops becoming a bit of a trend Mm. or a fad and i don't want to say that and piss off any you know lifelong veggies or people who do it for general ethical reasons but those who have watched like probably every week at the moment like i mean i don't tend to talk to lots and lots of people about nutrition but obviously people talk to me about nutrition um when just chatting general day to day and the amount of people that just kind of like really openly go yeah yeah so i've um i've become vegetarian and i'm a bit like right, why have you become vegetarian uh because i was like have you been watching too much netflix <laughs> and like it's the same sort of thing i have watched it but it's not because of that and it's like, right, okay, but you have watched it and that's subliminally like changed your thoughts for this month. Um, yeah, until you realise you missed bacon. Yeah. So. I think like obviously why this is so important in terms of especially the socially acceptable stuff as well, because it's kind of masquerading as something it, it isn't. But it, it basically can lead to like far higher risks of like actual eating disorders, even if you're just restrictive in one way. And it might start out completely innocent in being restrictive 
vegetarian for the right reasons but that there's obviously evidence that suggests that even doing that can has higher risks of eating disorders compared to someone that isn't restrictive in their diet or as restrictive so obviously i guess it's just again a, a concern and why it's such a big topic to talk about but. yeah i think it's this will become like the new sort of clean eating almost like where it's a bit sort of like starved binge but in terms of meat so they'll either have like a whole family bucket of kfc chickens to themselves or they'll be the most like veggie veggie in the world perhaps um i think that's probably most of that talk we've got obviously the perimenopausal talk that martin did which to be honest i'm just going to say we can round this up quite quickly in terms of saying obviously the menopause in women causes lots of negative impacts in terms of like cardiovascular risk osteoporosis sexual dysfunction cognitive decline and just general quality of life and he kind of talked about managing the symptoms in kind of just one managing like body comp changes so like he's put like obviously you kind of get an increase in body fat and reduction in, mo in muscle mass so basically doing something to combat that might help some of the symptoms um and then he talked about uh estrogen and its role in in things in terms of like why it's important for appetite control um it can lead to hyperphagia uh he also said that many other hormones have like appetite stimulating properties after exposure to estrogen um sorry m many hormones have their appetite stimulating properties after exposure to estrogen so um i think if i've read that right i don't know if i've written i think actually i think i've written that the wrong way around basically i think he's saying basically when they don't have estrogen other hormones then have an appetite stimulating pro property whereas when they that does have exposure to estrogen it doesn't have an appetite stimulating so basically it causes you to eat more if you have reduction in estrogen you know, i think is basically what the point was meant to be so cut long story short he basically said hrt it works <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the, obviously the problem with that is it does become a lifelong medication which i've 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 listened to a couple of podcasts and read some stuff and i actually spoke did i one of your uh, i don't know if she's still your client or ex client of yours but i spoke to her on facebook in one of our our client groups mm. where i said around had she considered hrt because she was talking about these very types of stuff um and she didn't want to do it but i was like well basically the the menopause is kind of signified by a drop in estrogen uh, obviously estrogen levels just basically plummet so much so that obviously all these things kind of come about because the estrogen drops so low we now have the ability to medicate and bring that back to normal so why wouldn't you and it kind of like that was almost like Mark's yeah. talk basically saying like drugs work but obviously they do have potentially some risks um they're obviously you, you kind of got to make sure it's right for you in terms of taking it but Basically, he said, like, think of it as taking it back to normal, and normal just works better generally in terms of, like, taking your estrogen levels back to normal, and then being normal helps with your appetite and helps with your energy levels and helps with everything else, basically. Um, so it just kind of gets you back to normal um, and reduces a lot of the symptoms that you might otherwise suffer from in, 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 in like, that perimenopausal time. So that's why I kind of feel like mm, people shouldn't feel bad about taking HRT in, in if they want to at that time of life, because you just kind of bring yourself back to normal. Like we, we, it's available to us. So why not do it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's what it's, it's like anything, isn't it? People kind of don't want to go against the uh, natural way, even it is quite a natural thing, but you know, forcing nature, um, people just kind of, you know, they want nature to take its course and, and do its well, thing. And like, yeah. so, some people like, some people might argue that that's nature's way of kind of 
getting rid of people that are no longer useful in society and which obviously i mean that in the effect in the sorry the analogy of like tens of thousands i don't know however long ago back in the day like as as tribes people got older in tribes they were a risk to that tribe because obviously they they were obviously less um physically active they couldn't get around as much they didn't maybe bring as much to the tribe so that's probably their way of just kind of getting rid of the old people they don't need anymore um we didn't live in that society anymore obviously that's this is like like a stretching hypothesis but still obviously that's what some people might think of it as so like we don't live in that time now why wouldn't you just say well actually we've got drugs that can keep me feeling young and you know full of vitality and back to normal as it as martin put it yeah yeah i think it is that kind of argument of why not? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's nothing unnatural about it, in my opinion, other than the fact that yes, you you are then becoming obviously if you do if you do start taking it, it becomes a lifelong medication that you kind of got to do. But plenty, I, I'll be honest, if it was me, um, I'd be all over that. I think when I get to the age, if I could just get prescribed TRT instead, like basically testosterone replacement, and just keep me young, I'd be all over it. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think it's one of those things you can kind of like talk about now, but and then also. Um, you'd have a different kind of point of view at the time than obviously the fact that we're not female but um, yeah it's one of the, yeah I'd definitely do that and then when it kind of got to it you'd be a bit like oh and then maybe read around it a bit more and, and that but so it's all a matter of education weighing up the risks weighing up the rewards and not that there is really any risks but um, yeah uh, there is, uh, I mean it did say, did say that the drugs some of the drugs do have some risks I guess like one of the things often mentioned is around potential risks of um breast cancer which i think and I, i'm in no way qualified to talk about this because i can't really remember but i don't think it's as clear-cut as that it does increase your risk for breast cancer i think there's more to it than that um what was it there the, there was a lady an american woman if i do remember rightly in the audience who sort of she made a statement yes. about some of the research uh, around that and think, the, the observational research potentially accelerate there's a risk of accelerating that was your, it, yeah. Your, like, if you've got susceptible genes to breast cancer, then it might accelerate something, but that isn't going to cause it. I think it's something yeah, like yeah. Lines, wasn't it? Yeah, that was it, yeah. So if, you, if you're going to get it in 10 years' time, you might get it in six years' time instead, yeah. basically. I don't know if it was quite um, even that clear-cut, but some of the yeah. lines. So basically, as long as you're having mammograms a lot, then you can catch it, and maybe you can even catch it earlier. So you could catch it at 50 instead of 60. Um, and when your your body's in a better place for fighting it, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it could actually be beneficial. But, uh, yeah. That was it. That was basically like, menopause happens hrt can fix it so yeah <laughs> basically. Right. that was basically the out- outcome of martin's talk so which obviously it was dropped during the last minute to be fair to him so as we explained i think on that note this is a super long podcast and way longer than i thought it was going to be um so we'll end it pretty abruptly shall we let's do it just cut it there Boof, done. Oh, 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 it wasn't gonna be quite that abrupt but okay <laughs> if you want to be that abrupt <laughs> um, no it's been useful hopefully people enjoyed that little rundown took at least a few nuggets or found it reasonably interesting especially the politics bit at the start um, if you did like it please subscribe rate review and all that stuff share with your mates get people listening help us spread the love um, yeah and on that note bye 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 thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast we'll speak to you all next week <laughs>